New York Times this morning, a few hours before the landing began. This dispatch warned the American people not to expect too much of the French resistance movement. It pointed out the great difficulties under which the French must operate. The American decision to withhold full diplomatic recognition from General de Gaulle and the French Committee is therefore being put to its first practical test. And if the resistance movement does not live up to the hopes that some of us have placed in it, there may be a temptation to blame that on General de Gaulle rather than on the French situation as a whole. If, however, the French resistance movement does prove effective, then General de Gaulle and his French committee will have scored a double triumph. They will have prevailed not only against the opposition of the Germans, but against the doubts and hesitations of President Roosevelt and our State Department. The people of the other occupied countries with their exile and their exile leaders will also follow events in France with passionate life and death interest. They'll see first how strong we are. Then they'll see how much authority an exiled leader carries. And if General de Gaulle cannot rally the French people around him with all his contacts in the French underground, then the exiled leaders of Belgium and Holland and perhaps of Norway, too, may have reason to believe that from now on, the leaders of the resistance struggle will be found inside Europe and nowhere else. The Russians will also watch the course of the invasion with just as much interest as we are watching it over here perhaps even with more interest, and this is why. Ever since the Germans invaded their country, nearly three years ago, the Russians have been clamoring for a second front in the West. During these three years, they've had about one-third of their richest territories invaded and laid waste. Nearly one-third of the Russian people have been enslaved at one time or another by the Germans. For three years, the Russians have been living for this day of liberation because they've always believed that only large-scale military operations in the West can take enough German divisions off their necks for them to be able to hit back with decisive strength and really smash the German war machine. This Russian demand for a second front in the West is impossible to reconcile with the fears that some people have that Russia hopes and plans to dominate the whole European continent. Quite the opposite. Only by large-scale military operations in the West can the Anglo-American powers hope to exercise political influence over Western Europe and the Russians are realistic enough to understand this. They'll gladly exchange a little loss of their influence, whatever it may be, in Western Europe for military assistance from us in their task of beating the main body of the German army, which, remember, is still drawn up on the Eastern Front. If today is a bright day for the Russians, it's a dark day for the Germans. The last German hope of making a separate peace with the Russians on the one hand or the Anglo-Americans on the other has now gone up the spout. Both the Russians and the Anglo-American powers are now far too deeply committed to their present strategy. They have too much to win by keeping it up, too much to lose by abandoning it. Nevertheless, we can expect to hear plenty of German propaganda that will continue to try to stir up suspicion and division between the Anglo-Americans and the Russians. The Germans are now under pressure from east, south, and west. They have a three-front war on their hands, and they'll fight this war with political as well as military weapons in the hope that somehow... Somewhere, one of these offensives can be called off. And the Japanese are going to watch with deep concern what's happening in Europe right now. If the Anglo-Soviet-American coalition comes through its present test in Europe, then the Japanese will have good reason to fear trouble for themselves later in Asia. But any split between the Anglo-Americans and the Russians would redound only to the benefit of Japan. That's why the combined liberation of Europe means bad news for Tokyo. Finally, there's the American aspect of today's great happenings. 
The United States now stands at the peak of its military, of its economic, of its political, and of its moral power in the world. Never in the history of our country has our power, our power of every sort, counted for so much as it does today. More than 150 years of American history lie behind the unexampled effort that this country is now making all over the world, not only in Western Europe, but in Italy, in the South Pacific, in Asia, on the seaways and skyways of the world, and right here at home, in our factories and on our farms. We're throwing everything we've got this summer into the greatest military operation of all time. But it's much more than a military operation. The fate of the whole world is involved, and in that fate, the United States has the decisive role to play. You have just heard Quincy Howe, Columbia's news analyst. Keep tuned to your Columbia station for a return to CBS World News Headquarters in just 30 seconds. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now, here in New York, is Columbia's correspondent, John Daly. The latest news we have of the Allied invasion of northwestern France is still in that bulletin from the Associated Press in London, which reports that Prime Minister Churchill said tonight that Allied troops had penetrated, in some cases, several miles inland after effective landings on the French coast on a broad front. In Washington, President Roosevelt's top military, naval, and air chieftains reported to him that the massive Allied cross-channel assault is going well up to now. The invasion is doing all right so far, Admiral Ernest J. King the commander-in-chief of our Navy said as he left the White House after an hour-and-a-half conference with the chief executive. Into our studios and our newsroom here in New York have come a series of eyewitness dispatches from the other side of the world where the fighting is going on. We'll read some of these dispatches to you to give you a clear picture of what is happening as the Allied troops storm the fortress of Hitler. Correspondent E.V. Roberts, representing the combined American press, has sent, for instance, a dispatch telling how General Eisenhower spent the hours just before our men went ashore in France. General Eisenhower, he said, stood on a rooftop on Invasion Eve and watched a mighty airborne armada form in the sky and wing its way toward France and the beginning of the final phase of the War of Liberation. The Supreme Commander radiated a calm confidence contagious to those about him. He spent the greater part of the day among the troops, seaborne and airborne, walking from group to group, chatting and laughing with the men. At 2.30 p.m., says Roberts, on Monday, Eisenhower met with a small group of British and American press and radio representatives. He told them that the invasion of Europe would be launched Tuesday and the machinery was already in motion. They were informed that the operation would be the largest of its type ever launched and that the Allies had assembled their mightiest land, sea, and air force for the purpose. Eisenhower talked to them for an hour and a half. The conference took place in his command tent, a plain, bare-walled structure about 20 feet square, with canvas roof and walls of stained pine boards. At the start, he greeted each correspondent with a handshake and a friendly, lopsided grin. He stressed the importance of the job his staff officers, British and American, had done in preparing and launching the blow, and spoke earnestly of his desire to emphasize this. The weather, the correspondents learned, had been the biggest Allied headache in the selection of D-Day. At one time, General Eisenhower interrupted his discourse, to look out of the door and comment with enthusiasm upon a patch of sunshine. The general sat comfortably slouched behind his big battered desk. On the desktop was a green telephone, a desk lamp, and inkwell, and a packet of cigarettes. During the conference, he occasionally leaned forward to tap with a finger for emphasis. He smoked constantly, sometimes lighting one cigarette from another. Beyond that, he made no movement. He did not appear to notice the express train roar of constant Allied air patrols overhead. 
Roberts adds that after the conference, the general stood outside, hatless and with hands in pocket, and chatted with the reporters informally. They remarked upon his calmness, and one asked him, don't these things make you nervous? He chuckled and said he was the type that boiled up inside, but that when things got too bad, he was usually able to sleep it off. He told them that he planned to visit the airborne units during the evening, and that before turning in, he would probably read a little philosophy or a Wild West story. The correspondents were then permitted to tag along on the Supreme Commander's visit to the airborne units, but only with the understanding that they would remain definitely in the background. There is a warm, personal relationship between General Eisenhower and his men, and he made it clear that he wished it to remain personal. Robert says that as the party swept along a road overlooking a coastal town en route to the airborne bases, the correspondents could see a great flotilla of landing craft out at sea. At the airborne assembly areas, Eisenhower walked swiftly and alone through the groups of men where they were drawn up at attention. He asked that they be placed at ease. He stopped frequently, picking men at random to talk with. Often he was completely surrounded by the men, and they trooped after him laughing and joking like schoolboys. The reporters estimate that during the evening hours, he talked with several hundred men individually. He asked them where they were from. He seemed determined to find a paratrooper from his home state of Kansas, and what they did in civilian life and what their army job was. And then he added personal touches. He asked a youngster where he got his haircut, and an ex-Dakota farmer how much wheat he grew per acre. He asked about the weird war paint of the paratroopers and was told that it was a mixture of cocoa and cottonseed oil. It tastes good, one trooper told him. The Supreme Commander's party reached the last base just at takeoff, says Roberts. At seven-second intervals, the big C-47s roared off the runway and lurched into the sky in a seeming endless stream. Eisenhower was escorted to the roof of headquarters for a better view as they circled above, coming into formation for the great task ahead. He turned his face toward France and watched them vanish in the darkening sky. And that's how General Eisenhower spent the last hours before invasion. The British radio has just reported that every plane in the vast fleet of American transport aircraft that flew with troops and equipment onto the continent was painted with broad blue and white stripes and carried colored lights, yet no fighters or heavy flak opposed it. The huge, brilliantly lighted armada stretched for more than 250 miles, continued the broadcast, which was recorded here at the CBS shortwave listening station. It traveled only a few hundred feet above the ground, and it took more than an hour to pass. It met only small arms fire, mostly from 50 caliber machine guns. Here is a late bulletin with a dateline Folkestone, England on it. It says, German guns across the English Channel opened fire at 5 p.m. today for the second time since the invasion began, but ceased as soon as Royal Air Force planes appeared over them. That is, of course, 5 p.m. English time, which would be 11 a.m. New York time. Penetrations several miles inland were made by American, British, and Canadian troops, which poured into northern France by air and sea in overwhelming strength and established firm fighting fronts in the first stage of the battle for Europe. That is, in, in essence, a summary of what Prime Minister Churchill said in his report to the Commons. Mr. Churchill, in his second appearance of the day before the House of Commons, gave this stirring report of the invasion. The Supreme Headquarters of General Dwight D. Eisenhower's Allied Expeditionary Forces added to Churchill's summary by disclosing that the first in a series of four or five obstacles in the way of Europe's liberation has now been overcome, disclosing that enemy opposition was less than anticipated and that coastal defenses were weakened into virtual uselessness by air and naval bombardment. Churchill said our airborne troops are well established and our follow-ups are all proceeding with very much less loss than we expected. Fighting, he said, is proceeding at various points. We have captured various bridges, which are of importance and which are not blown up. There even is fighting proceeding in the town of Cannes. 
That's spelled C-A-E-N, of course. All of this, although very valuable, is a first and vitally essential step, but it gives no indication, whatever, of what may be the course of the battle in the next few days or weeks, because the enemy will not probably endeavor to concentrate in this area. Here is more detail on the American leader's report to President Roosevelt. Admiral King, you'll remember, came out of the White House a little while ago and seemed to be very happy about the progress of the invasion. Admiral King was at the D-Day conference with the President, together with General George C. Marshall, Army Chief of Staff, and General Henry H. Arnold, the Chief of the United States Army Air Forces. The three top-flight leaders of America's military might emerged from their conference with President Roosevelt smiling and in apparent good humor. General Marshall was asked if he could say anything about the progress of the Allied landings, and he replied, I'd rather not, but he smiled with evident satisfaction. Admiral King then said, It's doing all right so far. President Roosevelt called the officers to the White House a few hours before, and he will go on the radio to lead the American people in prayer for success of the Allied liberation of Europe. Now, evidently, the airborne troops, which would mean paratroopers, glider-borne troops, and transport troops, have played a very major part in the securing of beachheads in Hitler's Europe. And here, a United Press correspondent who has just returned to England after riding on a 9th Air Force troop carrier plane, which dropped American paratroopers on France, tells his story. It's an eyewitness description. He says American parachute infantry, spilling from troop carrier planes with deadly stealth, apparently caught German defenses by surprise before dawn and struck the first American blow at selected targets in Normandy. Thousands of paratroopers were dropped dead on targets by hundreds of Dakota carrier planes operating in three wings from myriad bases in Britain. The surprise, he says, was shown in the lack of opposition to the first plane arriving over the drop zone and the moderate and inaccurate flak encountered by those which followed. Night fighter opposition was negligible, although the big C-47s and C-53s, which carried up to 18 men each, were escorted by Allied night fighters and intruders. The huge planes roared off from their bases in the dead of night, and a few hours later returned with one of the lightest casualty lists ever reported for an operation of such magnitude. The weather favored the paratroopers. The planes were able to drop below an undercast directly over the drop spot. And while the American paratroopers hit at German communications, airfields, supply dumps, and command points, British airborne units were striking farther along the French coast. Brigadier General Paul L. Williams, whose troop carriers led the invasion of Sicily, congratulated all wings in his command on the successful execution of their missions. Few crews reported difficulties. Lieutenant Arthur T. Douglas of New Orleans, who brought his decoder over the drop zone in one of the later groups, encountered heavy ground fire, which made it impossible to drop his paratroopers on the first run. He made three runs in all before dropping his human cargo. When we approached the drop zone, Douglas said, it appeared circled with machine gun fire and light flak, which formed a crossfire. The bullets sounded like rain on a tin roof. We made one run, but nobody could jump. And as I started away from the target, the crew chief told me about it. We were going out over the channel, but I swung the plane around and went back over the drop zone again, trying to get under the trajectory of ground fire. That time, most of the men jumped, but there still were some unable to get away. Flak burst near us and threw three men to the floor, so we circled and went back a third time. Bullets were whizzing all around the plane and cutting it up, so when I got rid of my stick, I went to the deck and got out of range. When he says he went to the deck, of course, it means he went right down as close to the ground as he could get. Major Howard W. Cannon of St. George, Utah, who was co-pilot of the lead plane, said that his crew saw fires burning furiously near the drop zone, apparently started by preparatory bombings. They looked like barrels of oil going up, is the way 
Major Cannon described it. His plane encountered some gunfire going over the Channel Islands, but it was ineffective, he said. Lieutenant Jack H. Smith of Hot Springs, Arkansas, saw one transport shot down. He says that we'd, we had passed the drop zone when we saw a blue pulsating flash from the plane ahead of us. We followed the burning flyer down. He went down gamely. But before he hit the drink, we saw five parachutes blossom out of the plane. That was the report of a United Press correspondent who went over Europe with American parachute troops this morning when the invasion started. America, here at home, we seem to have received the news of the invasion of Europe very calmly and then turned to the altars of our faith to pray for peace with victory. In the nation's hamlets and in the great cities, people went to churches, temples, and synagogues to meditate and to participate in the services of prayer scheduled for D-Day. There were few demonstrations. Groups gathered at newsstands and stood before radio loudspeakers. Comment generally reflected the combination of hope and trepidation which marked the end of a tense waiting period. I'd just come up to New York from Washington, and on the way up I noticed in the railroad stations that the people stood very quietly and read their newspapers. Even here in New York, in the subways, instead of glancing at the front page and then running to the sports page, people were sitting quietly and reading the latest details of the invasion from their papers, and sometimes on the stations you saw them portable radio, which was giving the latest news as they stood there. The people have been quiet. Perhaps they've tasted so often of this invasion that they now understand that just securing a beachhead doesn't mean the battle is won. They know that the days ahead of us are going to be just as difficult as those hours which followed immediately after H-hour on D-Day, which is today. Thousands of men and women in war production plants observed a brief moment of silence, followed by an immediate resumption of the flow of materials of war. Plant officials announced uniformly and proudly that the announcement came without a slackening of output. Here in New York, a public prayer observance to be held at 5.30 p.m. this afternoon at the Madison Square Eternal Light World War I Memorial was announced in ceremonies which will be repeated in communities in all parts of the country. Some cities, such as Albuquerque, New Mexico, announced D-Day and H-Hour with sirens and whistles, summoning men and women to their places of worship. At the United States Veterans Hospital in here in New York, 1,800 men still hospitalized 25 years after World War I, were given the news by nurses. Patients in pajamas and bathrobes, walking on crutches and canes, gathered in the hospital lawns and bowed in silent prayer. Newspapers issued extras all over the country, and radio broadcasting companies such as our CBS pushed all scheduled programs aside to bring you the news. The New York Stock Exchange halted its activities for a two-minute prayer period. Emergency orders for augmented personnel went out from the nation's telephone companies. As American servicemen accepted the news in their stride, a light note was struck by a group of French sailors in New York who linked arms and joyously danced down Broadway. That also happened in Philadelphia. I brought a new Philadelphia paper up with me, and they described there French sailors munching donuts in the Salvation Army canteen in City Hall Plaza, looking up when the women volunteer told them that paratroopers were landing in France. She had no way of knowing what the sailors thought, but she did notice that they gulped their coffee and swung across the plaza toward a subway entrance and their ships. The major racetracks suspended their programs, but generally sports events went on as scheduled. Virginia civil, civilian defense officials sent over the civilian air raid warning system a summons to 8 p.m. prayer meetings in all the cities and most of the towns. Here in New York, Lord and Taylor, a specialty shop, closed for the day, and its 3,000 employees were given the day off to pray and hope for victory. Now we have a bulletin here from New York which gives us further details on the young 
British girl, Joan Ellis, who sent through the false flash three days ago announcing the opening of the European invasion. Joan Ellis, it says, the 22-year-old British teletype operator who sent that false flash three days ago, reporting the European invasion was very happily remembered by newspaper editors when D-Day finally arrived. The newsmen here found time to message expressions of agreement with James P. Rosemond, who was the managing editor of the Akron, Ohio Beacon Journal. He said, based on Joan Ellis's statement, asking America to forgive me, suggests AP editor's cable message to her. Ours would be, no one in Ohio concerned about invasion flash, good luck and carry on. That message was forwarded to the London Bureau of the Associated Press. Tell the British girl who flashed the invasion Saturday that we all love her and that she scooped the world, said the Mayfield, Kentucky messenger. The South Bend, Indiana Tribune messaged, please cable Joan Ellis that Indiana thinks you knew it all the time. Comments such as these came from all parts of the country, and perhaps Joan Ellis did a great good deed for her country, for we know now that great fleets loaded down with troops and having all the semblance of a full-blown invasion have sailed repeatedly up and down the coast of France. They've had the Germans and tenderhooks and time and time again sent them to their bastions of defense only to find it was a false alarm. General Eisenhower at this time played another one of his wonderful tricks on the enemy. Watching past performances of invasions, I saw some of them in the Mediterranean myself. They got used to the idea that General Eisenhower never invaded unless the moon was waxing, was new, that the tides were high, and the H hour always came between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning. This time, General Eisenhower let the moon go its way, let the tides pretty much go their way, and struck in daylight, probably accounting for the surprise of the Germans. Here is a late report from the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in England. More than 10,000 tons of explosives, it says, were showered on invasion coastal targets by an estimated 31,000 airmen in the eight-hour period between midnight yesterday and 8 a.m. today, spearheading the tremendous aerial armadas which by night and day blasted a path for the invading ground forces was a giant formation of well over 1,000 RAF Lancaster and Halifax bombers which last night dropped 5,600 or more American tons of bombs on 10 Nazi gun batteries. Remember that the Lancaster and the Halifax are the great British bombers which have roared out over Germany these two or three years past and can carry great loads. They are the planes that usually drop the great blockbusters weighing 8,000 pounds and even 12,000 pounds. The resistance of the batteries, that's enemy batteries, has been greatly weakened by the bombing of the Air Force and the superior bombardment of our ships quickly reduced the fire of these batteries to dimensions which did not affect the problem. That is what headquarters announced giving us the, one of the clear-cut indications of the reasons for the success of our initial efforts in the liberation of Europe. The estimate of 31,000 airmen in action made by well-informed observers did not include airborne troops. Now, the well-informed observer in England is undoubtedly a capable army officer who is giving on-the-record background to guide the correspondents in their reports. We find now that the Japanese people have at last been informed of the Allied invasion of northern France. Don Mosley, our correspondent, the CBS correspondent in San Francisco, reports that Radio Tokyo has declined to editorialize in any manner concerning the success or failure of the operation. However, not a single Japanese comment has reached the Nipponese people themselves, and all Radio T Tokyo remarks have been almost verbatim reports of German communiques. Apparently... The Japs are playing it very cautious this morning, paying lip service to their Nazi comrades, but avoiding any firm propaganda line lest they find themselves out on a mighty weak limb. 
Meantime, a Mr. Ushiba, former secretary of the Japanese embassy in Berlin, said, it is not only the German high command, but also the entire German people on the home front who have been itching for this moment, because their conviction is that the enemy's European invasion is the long-awaited signal to touch off the pent-up strength of the German Wehrmacht to deal a most decisive blow to the enemy. Then Ushiba, in a sweeping remark, added his conclusion that now the Allies are walking into a death trap laid by the German high command. However, such a comment has not been told the Japs themselves. That gives us a fundamental idea of the kind of Japanese propaganda that is going out to the people of Japan. I don't think that uh, these reports from Japan necessarily indicate that the Japanese have any faith in the ability of their Axis comrades to hold the Hitler fortress of Europe. They must appreciate already that the beaches are secured. Here is a flash from uh, Reuters in London, which says many secret weapons were used for the first time by the liberating armies in the invasion of northwestern France this morning. The Ministry of Supply in London revealed that information just a short while ago. We've heard in the past months, almost now for in the past two years, the reports of German secret weapons. We've had a good deal of information about their rockets, about their glider bombs and their radio-controlled tanks, but we've had very little on the Allied side in the way of boasting of our magnificent weapons. I saw some of them in operation at the Anzio beachhead. They can't be talked about even now. And yet, even those weapons, as terrible as I saw them, have been superseded by even newer weapons, since this report says that many of the secret weapons were used for the first time by the liberating armies when they broke their way into northwestern France this morning to start the long-awaited liberation of the occupied countries in Europe. The news continues to come into the CBS newsroom. We will be standing by here to give you the latest reports as they come in. The latest report we have so far on the progress of the fighting is the announcement from Prime Minister Churchill that there have been penetrations of several miles. Radio France in Algiers broadcasts a statement by André Le Troquer, who is the French Commissioner for the Administration of Liberated Territories in metropolitan France, declaring that the liberation of France has started. Following is the text of the statement as broadcast to French areas and reported by the Federal Communications Commission. Events expected by the whole of the French people have finally taken place, says Mr. Le Troquer. Our hope becomes a reality. The liberation of France has started. In this most solemn hour of our history, we all have only one duty, total sacrifice for the motherland. French blood will flow again. Think of the sufferings that our brothers will have to endure to be finally liberated. Let us unite all our thoughts in the certainty that tomorrow France will be free and we shall make her greater and more beautiful than she has ever been. That report came from Algiers, the seat of the French Committee of National Liberation, and was made by André de Troquet, the French Commissioner for the Administration of Liberated Territories in Metropolitan France. Meanwhile, we received earlier today the news from London that General de Gaulle has arrived in England and evidently has already held consultations with the British authorities looking for the complete cooperation of the people inside France. What can we can expect in the way of cooperation and help from the French people must still remain a question mark. We do know that there are Frenchmen who have fought against the Germans underground for many, many months, for many years inside France. We will only have to wait now for time to see if all France rises to help us, and we feel sure that they will. These reports that we have just read you, eyewitness reports and the last-minute details of the news of the invasion, have just come into our newsroom and constitute the latest 
information that we have. You have just heard CBS correspondent John Daly. And now, while we wait for more news on the invasion, we will present another program. Our Gal Sunday, presented by the makers of Anison, Life Can Be Beautiful, presented by the makers of Ivory Soap, and Ma Perkins, presented by the makers of Oxidor, will not broadcast today because of the special news you've just heard. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Crisco's radio newspaper with Bernardine Flynn. Brought to you by the makers of Crisco. And now, here's Bernardine Flynn. Thank you, Ed, and hello, everyone. This is the day for which we've all been waiting. D-Day, invasion of Western Europe. To millions of people in the occupied countries, this is the beginning of their liberation after many long years of domination by Hitler and the Axis. Of course, we all want to hear the latest details. And in order that we might bring you as much invasion news as possible, Crisco is dropping its usual commercial time. Now let's switch to the New York headquarters of CBS World News for a report by Alan Jackson, one of Columbia's news editors. Briefly, the situation at the moment is this. We have landed, and from all indications, have things well in hand. Most of the details as to exactly what's going on come from the Germans, because, naturally, our commanders are going to use utmost caution in releasing information which the enemy might not have. However, Admiral Ernest King, the commander of the United States fleet, said this morning in Washington after a conference with President Roosevelt that, from his viewpoint, the invasion of Europe is doing all right so far. The grand assault on the continent, as a matter of fact, was scheduled for yesterday, but it was postponed until today because of bad weather. When it did get underway early this morning, shortly after midnight, it found the highly vaunted German defenses much less formidable in every department than had been feared. For instance, airborne troops who led the assault before daylight on a history-making scale suffered extremely small losses in the air, even though the great plane fleet extended across 200 miles of sky and used navigation lights to keep formation. Naval losses for the seaborne forces are described as very, very small, although 4,000 ships and several thousand smaller craft took part in transporting the American, Canadian, and British troops to France. Coastal batteries were virtually silenced by the guns of the British, American, and Allied fleets, including battleships, and the beachheads were speedily consolidated. The German radio says the scene of the landings was a hundred-mile stretch of the coast from Cherbourg to Le Havre. Britain's Prime Minister Churchill announcing the successful invasion of the House of Commons at noon, six hours after the first seaborne troops had landed, said the landings were the first of a series. And then later on he said that heavy fighting was taking place in the town of Caen, which is about ten miles inland. Berlin admits that the invaders have succeeded in sending landing barges into two estuaries that are behind the Atlantic Wall that great line of defenses which Hitler has talked about so much in the last couple of years or so. The Germans admit that Allied tanks have cut their way inland several miles between the towns of Caen and Isigny, two French towns about 35 miles apart. And, still according to the enemy, our troops have made penetrations ranging up to 10 miles. Thousands of Allied paratroopers, some reports say at least 20,000, landed behind the enemy lines to disrupt the German supply and communication facilities. These landings were most successful. And the Navy was on hand, too, the biggest armada in anybody's history. Surprisingly, the early reports say, as we just told you, the first resistance was comparatively light. Our casualties have been light so far. Correspondents flying in air squadrons overhead reported our troops flashing ashore against only little resistance. The airborne troops, the soldiers who crossed over the enemy land in air transports and gliders, have encountered only slight resistance so far. 
But this should not be taken as an indication of things to come. Quite the contrary. While it's true that the going seems to have been fairly easy so far, it'll get tougher later on. The Germans, for instance, are holding huge reserves of troops behind the lines, waiting to see where the Allies will hit the hardest. When that fact is determined, the enemy high command will order everything in his power into the attack. Thus the job of our paratroopers and airborne forces is to blow up the bridges, the highways, and the railroads over which the enemy reserves would have to move to counter our main blow. This enemy blow may come in a day. It may come next week sometime. But when it does come, it will be the enemy's supreme attempt to knock a damaging hole in our invading armies. And the fighting will be tough. General Eisenhower calls the invasion a crusade. And he says that nothing less than full victory can come of it. Early this morning, just a short while after the first official announcement of the invasion had been made, Eisenhower made a special broadcast to the underground fighters of the occupied countries. He warned them against any premature uprising, but he urged them to complete their preparations and to stand ready for the signal. And that signal, it is expected, will touch off the greatest revolt in history. Estimates place the size of these underground armies at something like 8 million men. 8 million men armed and waiting to strike back at the people who have held them in subjugation for so many years. Or perhaps it might be a good idea now to take a look at the geography, that is, the, the land at which the Allied armies are striking today. General Eisenhower's invasion hit the Atlantic Wall in the sector of the lowest French coastline, the widest beaches, avoiding the heavily fortified cliff opposite Dover, upon which the Germans had planted naval guns, which command the narrow straits of Dover at the eastern entrance to the channel. Caen apparently is the center of the first attack by airborne parachute troops. That's a key point on the water-level roads and railroads to Paris, which is barely 120 miles away, since its capture, that is, the capture of Caen, would force a German evacuation, hastily, of the whole Cherbourg Peninsula. So far as the geography of the French coast is concerned, the Allied High Command picked for its initial attack a sector giving the Allied forces the most favorable terrain. Except for the coastline east of Le Havre, toward Dieppe, where there are high, steep cliffs, the whole seafront under attack is flat and sandy. Cherbourg lies at the foot of a cliff, with the city and port at water level, but with the fortifications and airfield on a high plateau on the cliff, dominating the city from the south. It always was considered one of the best fortified and strongest defended of the French Channel ports. Le Havre lies at the mouth of the Seine, the natural gateway to Paris. The Havre port, once the terminal of the Normandy and many other great transatlantic liners, is the biggest port on the French North Shore. It was under frequent air attack during four years of occupation, but unless the Germans dynamite its locks in their defense or retreat, it may be found fairly intact upon the entry of American troops. One of the first coastal villages attacked and flown over by airborne troops was Burr-sur-Mer, the fishing village where Admiral Richard E. Byrd and his crew made a forced landing at the conclusion of their transatlantic flight in June 1927. Prime Minister Churchill told the House of Commons when he went to the address this morning that the invasion was proceeding according to plan. And then, with emphasis, he added, What a plan! President Roosevelt spent the early mornings of the invasion day writing a prayer for victory for the armed forces. And he will broadcast this prayer to the world at 10 o'clock tonight. He has expressed the hope that the nation will join him in the prayer. In part of that, he says, Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again, and with thy blessings we shall prevail over the unholy forces of the enemy. Mr. Roosevelt dispatched the prayer to the house by motorcycle messenger, and it was read on the floor shortly after Dr. James Gerald Montgomery, the chaplain of the House of Representatives, 
departed from custom to ask members to join him in the opening invocation. Again, the members stood, this time in silent prayer. At its conclusion, Minority Leader Martin of Massachusetts reminded his colleagues that many heartbreaking days lie ahead. During the morning, Mr. Roosevelt summoned the Army and Navy High Command to the White House for his first personal conference with the commanders since troops began hitting the beaches during the night. The High Command personnel included General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, General Arnold, head of the Army's Air Forces, and Admiral King, Chief of Naval Operations. General Marshall appeared worn when he went to the conference, as though he had spent a sleepless night. Already throughout the nation, countless church services are being held. Many states and cities have issued special proclamations on D-Day. Britain's King George is scheduled to go on the air this afternoon at 3 o'clock with a special Invasion Day message. French General de Gaulle broadcast to the people of France at 11.30 this morning. Before that, King Hawken of Norway sent a special message to his people. And now General Wilhelm Hansen, Commander-in-Chief of the Norwegian Underground, has broadcast an order to all organized fighting groups inside Norway to be prepared to take part in the Great Settlement. Well, that's the invasion news as it looks so far. I'll be back in a few minutes with a summary of developments today. And now back to Bernadine Flynn. Thank you, Alan. That was Alan Jackson, one of Columbia's news editors in New York, bringing us the latest details on the invasion and how it's been going since early this morning. If any later bulletins should come in while we're on the air, we'll bring them right to you. Recently, General Eisenhower prepared the underground of Europe for D-Day. A member of his staff told the downtrodden people to learn to recognize his voice, which was to bring them directions and instructions daily. And now that voice from Supreme Headquarters has announced to them and to the world that D-Day, H-Hour, has arrived. Yes, Ed, and already the underground is secretly at work, disrupting every enemy defense and troop movement possible. They are cutting communications, dynamiting bridges and viaducts, opening dams, destroying power lines and railroads. And I understand the French underground numbers more than one million people. That's right. It's a force which began as a guerrilla unit, and today it's virtually a corps of sabotage engineers. It's made up of many officers and men of the disbanded French army, men from all walks of life, all creeds and political beliefs. Most of the officers are army men, and many of its fighters have fought the Germans in two wars. There are also thousands of boys in the green uniforms of the youth labor camps who have chosen to join the underground rather than to go back to Germany as conscripts. You know, it's certainly amazing the way members of the underground have been able to feed themselves and gather information so secretly. Usually they are fed by their friends, and many times they gather food from isolated farms and villages. Planes flying over from London have delivered arms and explosives to them, as well as printing material and other supplies. Coded messages have kept the underground informed as to when these planes over. And every message and instruction to these men has had to be safeguarded with an enormous amount of care. One misunderstood direction could mean disaster. For instance, for many months, our own men have been preparing for this invasion. It's taken weeks and weeks to assemble ships to carry them, planes to support their landings, ammunition and food. But tons of material could be lost through a single careless accident. How true that is, Ed. While thousands of planes are necessary, it's still more important that one plane with a wide-awake pilot with the right guns and ammunition be in the right spot at the right moment. Exactly. A misread photograph, a road that must be open but is crowded with refugees, or even an open porthole on a ship are all invasion risks. The shine can be taken off helmets and the metal parts of guns, but there's no way of making sure that one or the other might not strike by chance against a landing boat shield and set off a spark to alert the enemy ashore. 
These are all things which couldn't be figured out on paper ahead of time. And yet there are things on which the very success of this second front depends. Ed, let's take our visitors on an imaginary visit over the English countryside where the chief of our invasion forces spent his hours working and planning every detail of this second front. General Eisenhower lived for a while in London, didn't he? Yes, he did, but some time ago he moved out to a six-room cottage in the country. The general was up every morning by five or six o'clock. Each morning before breakfast, he puttered around the garden for a little while and then read the newspapers. But by eight o'clock, he'd had his breakfast and was in his office hard at work. An office completely surrounded with maps and important documents, I should imagine. Yes, and with many pictures. Pictures of his family and of the allied leaders of the world. One of the pictures is from President Roosevelt. There is also one from Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. The inscription is in Chinese. You were speaking of documents, Ed. One of the most important of these is the shortest. It is the president's cable to Stalin, informing him of Eisenhower's appointment as commander-in-chief of the Western Front Invasion Force. And that room has contained countless secrets which the Germans had sacrificed many divisions to learn. It is a rectangular room with a big fireplace and two small tables and a large walnut desk in a corner between two windows. On the wall, there is an enormous map of Europe. In this office, the general has worked seven days a week on invasion plans. And now, friends... Let's switch back to the New York newsroom to see if any late details have come in since we last heard from Alan Jackson. There have been few really late details on the invasion in the last few minutes. However, here is a brief summary of the way the invasion news looks right now. The British Ministry of Supply says that many secret weapons never before used are being employed by the invading Allied troops. In Washington, Admiral King, commander of the United States fleet, says that in his viewpoint, the invasion is doing all right so far. General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, says, I can't make any statement. And to newsmen there, he said, you know all about it. Allied headquarters in England reveals that the invasion was scheduled for a day earlier, but was postponed because of bad weather. A dispatch from London quotes the German DNB news agency as saying that the invasion front has further widened in the past few hours. Prime Minister Churchill, as you know, has said that heavy fighting is taking place in the town of Caen, about 10 miles inland from the French coast. And that's the invasion news to this minute. Thank you again, Alan. Well, friends, the liberation of Western Europe is underway. Alan Jackson, one of Columbia's news editors, has supplied us with the latest news on this greatest of all military operations. It can't be repeated too often. The fighting that lies ahead will be extremely bitter. Let's all offer up a prayer for victory. That, friends, ends another edition of Crisco's Radio Newspaper. Join us again tomorrow at this same time. Until then, this is Ed Roberts. And Bernadine Flynn saying goodbye for the makers of Crisco. We return you now to New York. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Goldbergs, presented by the makers of Does, will not be heard today.
Take you now to CBS Washington, Albert Leach reporting. Washington has accepted the news of invasion with mixed emotions. The expressions of the man on the street have been remarkably similar to those of representatives in Congress. The dominant note was a prayer for success and expressions of confidence in ultimate victory under the leadership of General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Early this morning, I stopped a Marine corporal in a spar. I asked for their reaction. Wow, said the Marine, we'll be home by Christmas. Over in Congress, Senator Edwin C. Johnson said the invasion will prove to be, for Germany, the Waterloo of World War II. House Democratic Leader McCormick made this statement. Our boys, he said, are fighting for early victory to preserve for the future a decent world to live in. The final phase, the invasion, is now on. We have had two terrible wars in less than 25 years. Let us hope that after victory, the United Nations will have courageous leadership that will save the next generations from war. Republican leader Joseph W. Martin said this, The Allied armies landing in France carry with them the hopes of liberty-loving people all over the world, that the invading forces shall meet with complete success and win an early and decisive victory is the devout prayer of all our people. An early victory and an early return of the fighting men of America to their homes is our fervent hope. But dawn broke over Washington this morning to find the streets of this world capital virtually deserted. It was a bright, cool morning. There was no outward change in Washington. Radio stations and newspapers were, of course, operating with full staffs, as they had been for several hours. The Pentagon building, where the War Department is housed, the Navy Department, other government offices directly concerned with the war, were operating with nearly complete staffs and with additional employees arriving by the minute. But on the streets and in the downtown buildings of Washington, there was no change. Virtually no of these people seemed to be aware that the invasion had begun. When several were told, they were skeptical. They had seen the error of Saturday, and they had it still in mind. As the morning lengthened, Washington in general seemed still seemed to be concerned only with its early morning business as usual. By 6 o'clock, the number of people on the streets had not increased to any appreciable extent. Invasion or no, Washington is not an early rising town. Eight o'clock is about the earliest starting hour. For five minutes, just after six o'clock, from the newsroom of CBS in Washington, I watched the corner of 13th and E Streets Northwest. In that five minutes, two passenger cars, one taxi, one bus, and two pedestrians passed by. During the day, 13th and E is one of Washington's busiest corners and it is usually crowded until as late as 1.30 in the morning, crowded with all the color that makes up wartime Washington, for this corner is in the heart of the theatrical restaurant district. During the morning and throughout the evening hours, servicemen and service women in all the uniforms of the United Nations mingle with the thousands in civilian dress, but by 7 a.m. business had picked up a little, but still no more than normal. Laundry trucks were in evidence, and so were the ice trucks servicing the restaurants. And most of the pedestrians were solitary, walking along at leisurely pace. There was no excited greeting, 
no manifestations whatsoever that the long-awaited invasion was underway. It was not until 7.30 when the 8 o'clock starters began to hurry along that an undercurrent of excitement was evident. 